Welcome to another episode of The Ladies' Room, as always, with my lovely co-host, Jane McManus. I am Julie DeCaro. We are here uh, to talk about sports and sports-adjacent things. Uh, So, you know, we haven't talked, Jane, at all about the Olympics. And I'm, like, totally, like, jumping, like, rearing to go about the Olympics. Um, Obviously, you know, they were pushed back a year because we're in a pandemic, and that costs something in the neighborhood of $19 billion or something insane like that. Um, and they are, come hell or high water, going ahead with the Olympics in Tokyo this summer, despite the fact that something like 80% of the country does not want the Olympics to happen. And and this is the number that kills me because Japan handled the initial COVID outbreak so well. Only 2% of their population has been vaccinated. And now right. all these people from all over the world are descending on their city. I'd be I'd be absolutely furious if if I were Japanese. And so we had Naomi Osaka come out is the first athlete, I think, really to say that she feels very conflicted about this. Yeah, I mean, there are new lockdowns that are happening in Japan. It really is. You know, th- this is the thing. I think sometimes when you're sitting in the United States, we are very much thinking that what's happening in the rest of the world, with the exception of the well-publicized, just absolute misery and death in places like India and Brazil, that we think that the rest of the world is kind of doing how we're doing, which is getting better. Um, Our numbers are going down in a lot of places, and it feels like things are opening up a little bit, but that is not happening everywhere. Our vaccination rates are way ahead of so many other countries. And I think- Including Canada. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is one thing that has gone very well in the United States is the vaccine rollout in the last four months. And I, I just, you know, it's, it, is a, it is a credit to, to the new administration, to the, the companies that made those vaccines. But we have to remember that, that they need to go to the rest of the world as well. And, and the rest of the world needs access to these, you know, really life-saving um, uh, vaccines. But to ha- not have those available in wide in a widespread way, and to have a vulnerable population, then where you're bringing the world on airplanes, <laughs> and it just it is you know this is a small this is a, you know relative to the rest of the world it's a small island nation, and and you know that could it could do a lot of damage uh, from a public health standpoint to have the games even if you don't have fans. Yeah, I um, I guess I assume because we were so like we were such a disaster on social distancing and on masking with all the you know people running around screaming about this being a hoax that I just assumed that we were behind when it came to vaccinations, too. And on Twitter, listening to you know, just watching Canadians who are just now getting their first shots. Mm-hmm. And I guess the situation is the same in Japan. I just assume anyone that has socialized medicine is like doing better than we are. No. Um but and that then, is not been the to, case. No, it's not the case. And I, you know, and I have friends who who I speak with on a regular basis who who live in in the EU, and um, and and they're, you know, our kids have gotten vaccinated, and you know, to them, to the idea that eighteen year olds would have vaccines before the elderly population in the EU, which is exactly what's happening, is uh-huh. uh, it's it's you know, it's infuriating, honestly. So I saw Justin as well. 
I saw Justin and Sophie Trudeau getting theirs like a couple weeks ago. And I was like, how did I get vaccinated before the prime minister of Canada? Right. How does that even happen? I mean, that's that's crazy to me. So, I mean, there's no way all these people are going to be vaccinated and immune in time for the games um, to start. Uh, the, the, there's been a lot of polling done in Japan and, and, you know, eight people came down with COVID or tested positive for COVID after the torch relay, which they are doing behind giant tarps, number one, so that the people don't crowd around to watch and, and wind up spreading it. And second of all, because people are so upset about it, that they're sort of doing everything under cover of darkness. And it, it really, I mean, look, I, you know, I was a kid who grew up as a gymnast and I was a diver. The Olympics were always like, you know, the goal for everybody, you know, who's in a sport at that age. And I always was a person who teared up during the opening ceremonies and, and I just lived for the Olympics. Um, you know, and as I've gotten older and as I've learned more, um, I really am very conflicted about the fact that we even have the Olympics and the fact that, um, you know, what it costs cities and countries to host these games and what happens after everyone leaves and all the pageantry is gone. And, um, uh, you know, it just seems like, I mean, we should just, be- I know they've, they're not going to, cause they've already spent a ton of money on this and there's much more money to be lost if they don't hold the games, but it just seems like it would be a great time to, this would be a, if there was ever a time to just bag the Olympics, this would be it. Well, and what's so important about what Naomi Osaka has to say is I think that certainly in the United States, we we do have this kind of relentless positivity and we we have this kind of attitude that is we're, we're just going to, you know, we're just going to do it. We're just going to get it done. And we're, you know, take the risk and, and move forward. And that's kind of been our approach for better or for worse to COVID. And I think there are other countries where that isn't the approach. Um, and and so we're used to hear like Brandy Chastain. I've, I've heard her in a couple of places. And and totally understand where she's coming from when she's like, yes, let's let's do the Olympics. They're doing it as safely as possible. But I think you have Naomi Osaka, who, you know, not only is she an athlete who would play in the games, but she's also, you know, she's also Japanese. And so she she can contain both of the reluctance of the Japanese people in her way of looking at this and her own competitiveness as an athlete. And I think that's why her comments um you know, means so much and kind of carry a little bit more weight. She's not able to discount the risk to her, to her community and to her people. And, yeah. you know, I think, and that to me is, it's quite poignant. And it's also for her to speak out, you know, she's a discordant voice in the athlete community by, you know, by expressing that reluctance. And so I think it takes it, I think it takes a bit of bravery to do that as well. Yeah, I I completely agree. She said, at the end of the day, I'm just an athlete and there's a whole pandemic going on, which I think is, you know, I think that especially once you get to that level of a sport, you are so in your bubble and so laser focused on your goal that I think it it really takes, um, you know, somewhat of intelligence and courage to to look around and say, you know, this is maybe this isn't the best idea. Um, Yeah, she talks about her own pocketbook that she's affecting, right? Right. right. But I mean, it's also, you know, all those sweat and tears and everything that you've put into it. Of course you want to play in the, I mean, look, anyone I know who's ever been to the Olympics is like a ride or die Olympic, you know, just loves everything about it. Because I mean, how can you not? It's, I mean, you, you see it on TV, how grand it is and all the pageantry. And of course, you know, once you're there in person, imagine what that feels like. So, I mean, I completely understand. I think we do this thing with the Olympics that we do also, we did it with college sports this year, which really bothered me, especially college football, which is we ask the athletes who often are very young, which doesn't mean that you don't have a good point of view, but also can mean that you maybe, you know, don't have a lot of life experience. Um, 
what whether or not they want to play. Like Trevor Lawrence's thing kept being, you know, in college football season, we want to play. We want to play. Of course you want to play. You're a 21-year-old male on a college campus who's a star quarterback. Of course you want to play. Like right. your opinion means less to me than an epidemiologist's opinion or a public health official's opinion. And we right. do this thing where we're like, well, the kids want to play, so we should play. You know, it's like, why? This is like the children leading the rest of the world in this. Like, these are not the people we should be listening to. And I feel like the same thing is happening with the Olympics. Yeah, I mean, that's true. Only it's opposed to it being the athletes. And I, and I think this also holds true with college sports. It's not It's not really, they're, they're just pointing to the athletes and saying the athletes want to play. What it really is, is the money generating mechanism that is forcing everything forward. And that's really what's happening with the Olympics as well. I mean, you you mentioned, what was it, $19 billion? I think 19 lost, billion, something right, like that. Yeah. By not having it last year. Well, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of investments that were made that can still pay off if it's held this year. And if that money is lost, this year, because it's not held, those those losses multiply quite a bit. But um, so I think you know we're you're looking at it, like, internationally a broadcast sponsorship structure that is is very very much dependent on the Olympics going forward. Yeah, one hundred percent. I, I would, I mean, honestly, I would like to see them just call it off this year. And I know that is so heartbreaking. I've had friends who were like, you know, supposed to like 1980 was supposed to be their big moment in the Olympics and how devastated they were when we boycotted. So I know that is not an easy decision. Um, I just, you know, I know that Pfizer and biotech are donating vaccines to every athlete and every person going to the Olympics that wants it. I hope everybody gets it because I cannot think, I mean, what happened to Brazil in the aftermath of their Olympics where, you know, everything was just decimated the public health system, um, the police were completely militarized because you get all this money to buy tanks and riot gear and tear gas and everything that you wouldn't get normally from the IOC, um, they you know, they were supposed to clean up Gunabara Bay. They were supposed to revamp their entire public transportation system. There was a ton of corruption. And in the end, nothing was any better than it was before. And they are left with, you know, just a ton of debt. Um, I, I mean, that I think is, you know, a pretty bad case scenario for, you know, what happens after you host the Olympics. But imagine doing something like that to a giant cosmopolitan city and also leaving the virus behind when you leave. I mean, yes. I I mean, I do think that the Olympics for a long time has needed to be rethought in terms of place. We actually, Julie, solved this problem on the trifecta. The show oh, great. Yeah. yeah, we actually solved it. Um, you know, the Olympics could give me a call. Uh, my DMs are open. I'm happy to discuss. But I think that, you know, there, there's a lot of damage that's done in communities that don't have a lot of extra resources. And the Olympics could solve this by having, you know, say four sites on different continents and rotating the place of the Olympics every year. And, you know, that way it wouldn't be, you wouldn't have this individual burden on a geographic location renewed. And and I don't think it's sustainable anyway, going forward, there are going to be a lot of things to think about, whether it's, you know, climate change or um, just, you know, poverty, like, you know, fairness to different communities, and you could hardwire those stadiums for the kinds of uh, things you'd need to do international broadcasts. I, I just think the Olympics needs to be rethought in a lot of different ways. And this is a great opportunity to do it, frankly. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I guess we'll see what ultimately happens here in Los Angeles. But, you know, like I said, I'd even be in favor of, you know, just everybody sends money to Athens and we build stuff there permanently. We go there every four years. But something has got to be done differently because this is not sustainable. And we're going to wind up with a situation where the only 
places willing to host the Olympics for propaganda purposes are fascist regime, regimes, which I think is not, <laughs> not what we want. Avoid that. Yeah. Now hosting Olympics, North Korea. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> exactly. Totally uh, willing to build all the stadiums. Yeah, absolutely. And people are eating grass, but that's fine. Um, hey, we have a terrific guest coming up. Uh, we'll be right back with college basketball and WNBA superstar Jen Rosati after this. We are very excited to welcome to this episode of The Ladies' Room uh, someone who has described, you know, when they put great behind your name um, in like every headline that you're in, you know, you've, you've accomplished some stuff in your life. Joining us is Jennifer Rosati, who is described everywhere as a Connecticut, excuse me, as a Yukon great, which is yeah. something that you don't see every day. Uh, she is the new president of the Connecticut Sun, and we WNBA season is upon us. We've got preseason games starting tomorrow. So Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So we got some great news uh, yesterday about, you know, it, with this push that, that we're having to try to make women's sports, uh, you know, live up to the playing level that the men have with all the resources and investment they've had over the years. And it feels like we're starting to finally see some of that go the way of the WNBA and of other women's pro sports leagues that there people finally have realized there's an audience out there. And we mm -hmm. found out yesterday we're going to have like 100 games on national broadcast channels on TV, which is terrific news. Yes, um, obviously very excited about a couple announcements that came out of the WNBA this week. You know, obviously the partnership with Google and the broadcast schedule. And, you know, I think that for so long, you know, we've been fighting to just have our stories told. You know, that's kind of, you know, the, the point where we're at is we have a great product, um, you know, invest in women, you know, put us out there and, 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 you know, there'll be some really good return on investment if you if you invest in us. So just exciting um, to have the season starting and having so much great news and just seeing so much uh, chatter all over media, social media about how excited people are to, to finally be able to get to see their favorite teams in person this year. One of the interesting things about the way this deal is structured or that the announcement came out is that you're going to have games not just on ESPN, which has kind of been a traditional broadcaster and, and CBS has streamed a little bit, but it's ABC, CBS, NBA TV, Facebook, Oculus is going to be streaming some games. Twitter is going to stream yeah. some games. There's, it, it is a bit more fragmentation than we're used to seeing in a lot of these contracts. And I, and I look at that and I think, well, there's no more of the home of, right, the WNBA necessarily. But at the same time, there are lots of different ways to, to actually access the, these games. And I, I just wondered, from your point of view, as somebody who's you know obviously been in this space for a long time, is, is that an improvement? Is that part of the creativity that's just required for a league like the WNBA to, to get its product out there? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, when, when you think about um, how people watch sports nowadays, you know, it's, it's not just that sitting on your couch at home and, and turning on the television, right? You know, and we do want to um, make sure that we're attractive to all demographics. You know, the, the fans that want to be in the stands, the fans that want traditional um, television avenues. And then of course there's the demographic that likes to watch everything on their, you know, phones or their iPads. And so, you know, I think that like having more opportunity for exposure is a, a really good thing for our league. I mean, you, you know, at this, at this point, even men's professional sports are broadcast on different, you know, channels and avenues as well. So I think at this point, we're excited about how many people want to be involved that want to have 
um, our, our games broadcast on their outlet. Um, and there's a lot of fans. I mean, there, there's definitely the fans that, that want it to be easy, but if you're a true fan of the WNBA, you're going to find a way to watch your favorite teams and your favorite players um, because they are now accessible almost everywhere. And just to follow up on that, I know that just demographically speaking, you have a lot of younger fans that are accessing through streaming platforms now. And I would, I mean, I would imagine you have a sense of what the Suns fan base is and how they're, how they want to access these games. Well, our Suns fan base wants to come to the arena and watch the games Mm. in person. (laughs) Good luck. um, (laughs) We definitely, I think, have an older demographic in Connecticut. It's just kind of, it's how it's been even since I was playing at UConn, you know, we, we've got the, you know, the grandparents and we've got the, the fathers bringing their daughters. And, um, so there's, there's quite a a bit of a mix. And I think, um, they're always going to have the opportunity to come and see us. And like I said, see their favorite players, whether they're, you know, former UConn players or not. Um, and, you know, then then we'll have our traditional Nesson games and our, our, our games that are, are scheduled on live national television. But, if we're, we're looking to attract a younger demographic, we want to make sure we're accessible to that demographic as well. We, we do want to get them in the, in the stands. And I think one of the ways you do that is you hook them on, you know, whatever, you know, in, in whatever way that you can, whether it's through advertising, through having games on Twitch or Facebook, um, but you want to make them excited about your product. You want to make them excited about your players and your brand and what you're trying to accomplish and the, and the partnerships that, that we create throughout Connecticut, New England. So um, I think in, in that realm, you know, we, we want to be creative going forward and we want to continue to service all of our existing season ticket holders and our fans that have been loyal, you know, over the past 15 years to the Connecticut Sun. But it's also time now to put our product out there for, for more people to see and, and, and attract a different demographic as we go forward as well. You know, Jen, in another career, I was a sports talk radio host. And I remember about two years ago, I think it was two years ago during the WNBA draft was the first time that I remember sitting in the studio doing a show and the entire, my entire Twitter timeline and the trending topics were all WNBA women who had been drafted. Yeah. And people were calling in saying, are you going to talk about the WNBA draft, which was something that had not happened before. And I feel like since then, the the you know the um the line of people on the graph that that are rabid WNBA fans has been going straight up and i feel like i'm seeing a ton more about the WNBA com- you know just in the the general sports space conversation not necessarily in the women's sports space can you guys feel that from where you are as well or is that something that we're just noticing in media uh, i mean i think we can feel it i think you know when you talk about the the numbers of of people who viewed the WNBA draft over the last few years and how significantly it has increased. Part of that is ESPN doing a great job of covering at a different level. It's, it's longer now there's um, you know, even through COVID there's, you know, individual interviews and, and player stories and special interests, you know, stories for the, for the draft picks. And I think those go a long way. And, and then you look at it, you know, coming off the heels of the NCAA women's tournament, where we also have had record numbers over the last mm-hmm. few years. And again, it's a testament to the, the young women that are in the game that are exciting to watch, that are creating this uh, storyline throughout the, the NCAA tournament. And then people are tuning in two weeks later to see what their future holds. And so I love the timing of it, you know, that it's, it's kind of almost back to back because we can utilize the momentum where people are still eager 
to hear about women's basketball and go right into the draft two weeks later. And then you have the season starting within a month. So um, it, it's just a great time to be um, talking about women's basketball. I think people have really missed it over the last couple of years, but you definitely have seen a trend. Even when I wasn't involved in the WNBA the last few years, I certainly agree with you. Even, even though I follow a lot of women's basketball on my Twitter, it was still what dominated, you know, every single post for yeah. days at a time. And I think that's really exciting. So full disclosure, one of the first things that I did when I got out of um, J school in 1997 was covered the inaugural season of the Liberty uh-huh. and um, you and you were playing in the ABL at that time for the New England blizzard. Right. And yeah. I don't think, you know, a lot of people of this generation don't understand, but there were two women's basketball leagues at that time that were kind of yes. vying um, for the audience. There was a real sense coming out of the Atlanta Olympics that this was the time for women's team sports. And you were part of that. And I just wanted to know, kind of looking back on that, you know, how do you, you know, what do you think and, and how do you kind of, um, you know, kind of think about that era and, and coming out of it and what's happened with women's basketball in the, you know, in the last 25 years now? Yeah. Well, I, I can remember, uh, my mom just was reminding me of this the other day. Um, you know, I was about to graduate from UConn. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm really done playing basketball yet. I, I don't know what I want to do. I mean, this was 1996. Um, and then right towards the end of my senior season is when they had made the announcement that they were going to be forming the ABL. So I was like, oh, this is perfect timing for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then the following summer is when they started the, um, the WNBA. So when I think back on that, you know, people were like, oh, no, two, two leagues can't coexist. It's not good for the game. And, and, you know, eventually they're right. You know, we couldn't have two professional leagues going on in the United States. However, it did give a lot of these women that were playing overseas a chance to come back and be a professional athlete in the United States. So there was just more opportunity with when you count the 10 to 12 teams that were in the ABL and the 10 to 12 teams that were in the WNBA. For three years, you had, you know, 20 plus teams full of women, both coming out of college and women that have been playing overseas and that had not had opportunity to really be able to do what they love in the U S and, and so I think it was a real special time. I know the ABL ended up folding, but we, you know, we used to average over 10,000 fans at the Hartford civic center when we played with the new England blizzard, there was, you know, great names in the game. And I think when the league folded and we all um, got drafted into the WNBA, it created even more excitement about having all of the best players in the world playing in one league. And I know there was a lot of doubters um, probably in the first 10 years of whether or not the, the league would, would last. Um, but when you look back now, 25 years later, and you see, um, you know, the momentum that the league has, and I think they're on the cusp of, you know, really just, you know, driving even more and more social media and media attention. Um, it's pretty cool to have been there kind of at the beginning of it. And now to be circling back at this point in my career and get to be a part of it um, when, you know, at the most exciting time in its history. Yeah, it is really exciting. And, you know, you're so right about building off the NCAA tournament, which, you know, initially got a lot of uh, press for all the wrong reasons and these things that we just keep seeing these inequities in the game. 
Um, but, you know, at the end of it, I feel like the women in the, the game and the level of play took over and everyone I knew was watching the women's NCAA games, even if they weren't people who necessarily had watched before. Um, I know I'm super excited to see what Ari McDonald does in her career. I absolutely fell in love with her, even though she mm -hmm. picked my alma mater apart with surgical precision. <laughs> it was painful to watch. So just as a fan, what games do you sort of have circled on your calendar that, that are going to be big ones or, or what players are you excited to watch? this year yeah well don't forget she surgically um went through the yukon my alma mater UConn <laughs> right. as well too so <laughs> we're all feeling the pain but you're so right just about um you know the 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 tournament starting with negative attention and um so many of the inequities needing to be addressed but at, at the end of the day it really brought light what women have been fighting for for decades you know this isn't just about the weight room this is about um, you know, the kind of per pervasive inequity in the NCAA and how it's set up for women to not be able to be successful and not to have the similar kind of investment or, um, you know, structure to be financially, uh, you know, you know, financially um, rewarding. I think yeah. it's, it's really tough when you, when you think about how long it's been that they have focused on men's NCAA tournament in such a way that it's, it's raising them a billion dollars a year, but that similar investment is not going into women's basketball. And so, yeah, it, we're fighting that. And, and it's, it's good that it's come to light, but I agree with you that it also turned people's eyes to the NCAA tournament. You know, for whatever reason they were watching, they were watching. And so Sedona Prince's TikTok video, whatever you want to call it, <laughs> it, it made people watch the NCAA tournament. And when they did, they saw what we, us women's fans have seen all along, you know, great, players, great coaching, new stories, um, new heroines, um, you know, and just a phenomenal product that, that had everybody on the edge of their seat. I mean, I think this was one of the most exciting NCAA women's tournaments that I've watched in a long time. So yeah, I'm excited. I don't know if I, I mean, other than the Connecticut sun games, I, you know, I, I don't know that I can say I'm circling any others right now. I'm just trying to keep my head above water here as I start this new adventure and I'm still coaching with the Olympic team. So I do think that I've, I've, you know, been able to develop relationships with some of the national team players. So I'm excited to see, you know, how they perform throughout this first half of the season. And then I'm excited to be able to work with them for the Olympics. But um, it's just going to be really fun for me to, to not just be watching from afar, but to have, you know, front row access now um, to these women who are the best at what they do in the entire world. So uh, just, you know, I know I have a lot to learn and this is a whole new um, role for me, but I'm really excited about you know, like I said, being a part of the league, being a part of the Connecticut Sun, um, you know, I think Kurt does a great job with this team and um, it's been so successful over the last few years and just looking forward to being able to add to that success and, and see what we can do to try and bring a championship to Connecticut. Yeah, you talk about this being a new role. Obviously, you're a uh, in the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame inducted 2013. You played for a long, long time, but you also, and then you coached, you got into coaching um, in Hartford you know, and, um, and then George Washington. And, and now as a president of a team, you are in a position where you're going to be making a lot of decisions that can affect, you know, how players are experiencing the game and the conditions that they get. And, and you're doing this in a pandemic and you're also mm -hmm. doing this at a time when yesterday, for example, I think there were nine unions, sports professional unions, including the WNBA players association that came out in support of voting rights. Yeah. Um, and so you have a lot of these issues that are really swirling and it seems to me kind of this new role that you have um, means that you have to pay attention to all of them. Yes. 
Absolutely. And, you know, I, I, some people have asked like how my past has prepared me for this. And, you know, I think people don't realize what a coach's job is, you know, like I've been having to manage a program since I was 25. As when I first became the head coach at, at Hartford, I had to fundraise and help with ticket sales and figure out marketing and recruiting. And, um, and then I've only enhanced my experience in those areas as I've continued throughout my career. Um, I know that there'll be some challenges. I know there'll be things that I need to learn, but I think the, the lens that I can provide as a former player and now a former coach um, is very unique. And, um, you know, this past year with my team at George Washington, we were, we were in the middle, you know, of everything. You know, we were in the middle of the election. We were in the middle of social justice issues. Um, so we couldn't really ignore it. It was part of who we became as a program. Um, we had a campaign called Bigger Than Basketball, and our student athletes were really involved in finding issues um, that they were passionate about, that they wanted to bring attention to, and they wanted to do something about. We had a we we had a voting rights day where we had everybody um, in the athletic department writing letters to you know, just people across America reminding them to vote. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, we had mental health awareness day. Um, we obviously had black lives matter. We had pride day. So a lot of the things that we did at the college level, we can mirror at, a, but in a much bigger way and with a much bigger platform in the WNBA. So I'm very aware that part of my role is to listen, um, to make sure I'm amplifying the voices of our coaches and our players. Um, it's to make the experience playing in Connecticut one that every player wants to be a part of um, because there's not just a winning tradition, but we have a loyal fan base. We have um, the kind of environment that allows women to grow as they get older and feel prepared for life after playing. Um, and then also be able to partner with, you know, organizations um, and corporations in Connecticut to enhance the brand of our players and our coaches as well. And so I do think we have a unique market and we have a unique setup with, um, you know, being tied to the Mohegan sun. And, um, I'm just really looking forward to learning more about it and, and seeing all of the, the opportunities for growth that our franchise can have. But I think most importantly, thinking about what the women of the WNBA were able to accomplish last summer, um, not just in their words, um, and not just what they, you know, talked about, but in their actions and being yeah. able to, you know, um, you know, get rid of Kelly Loeffler down in Atlanta and get new ownership <laughs> for their team and to be able to help elect Reverend Warnock in Atlanta, I, you know, in Georgia, I think it's so impressive that they turn their beliefs and their voices into action. And I want to make sure we continue to celebrate all of that because there's always so much that we have heartache with, you know, when it comes to social justice issues and it's nice to be looking at these women knowing that there's also things that we can celebrate because they really are ready to to change the world and they're not just about being basketball players and so that that's really impressive to me and certainly one of the driving forces for me wanting to be a part of the league again you know jen we always talk on this show about the importance of telling women's stories and mm -hmm. with the wnba being at the forefront of the black lives matter movement um having their season during a pandemic and doing it in a bubble and you know we didn't see you know women sneaking out at nightclubs and you know stuff like that we really saw everybody you know, doing what they were supposed to do, following the rules, doing everything they could to be safe. And then with the Black Lives Matter movement, I mean, you know, I think people talk about the NBA, but, you know, we talk all the time about how it was the WNBA that really led this movement. And I think that 
seeing women and seeing those women in that capacity, seeing them all hop off the bus with vote Warnock shirts and stuff like that was the yeah. thing that, that got a lot of people interested because they felt like these women were sort of people they could relate to who had similar political views and who, you know, they felt were on the right side. Yeah. Um, does Has the WNBA, because I know we see like the NFL is very uneasy with how they handle racial justice and social issues. And same thing with Major League Baseball. Do you feel like the WNBA, not just the players, but the league and the brand and the people that make the decisions have sort of leaned into the um, the, the political aspect of it? Uh, absolutely. And again, I, I still have to learn the ins and outs of, of the league, so I don't want to speak out of turn, but just as an outsider looking in, you know, last summer wasn't the first time that they took a stand. I mean, you mm-hmm. think about what Minnesota did years ago um, when they wore their I Can't Breathe t-shirts um, and the statements that Amaya Moore and, and Lindsey Whalen and Rebecca Brunson were making in their post-game um, interviews. Uh, you know, this is, this is, this has been going on for years. You know, women have been at the forefront of this. They just haven't been at the forefront of the attention, mm-hmm. you know? And so I think, um, the fact that it, it wasn't just a one-time deal last summer, um, is proof and a testament to the league and the leadership in the league that they're going to allow this to be a player's league. They're, they're not going to censor anybody. They're not going to tell anyone to not be involved. They're not worried about business over what's right. And, and again, this is just my opinion looking from the outside in. Um, they're going to want to partner with, with corporations that want to invest in what these women stand for. And so I think that's really important for, for people to understand. What the women want, they want to do it right. They're not going to break the rules in the bubble because they, may, they will make sacrifices for the, for the whole. They will make decisions that benefit the entire league because they understand whether they're a first-year player just starting their journey or they're a, an 18-year veteran like Sue. They want to leave the league in a better place than when they arrived. And so they're always going to make the right decisions. They're always going to stand for what they believe is right. And I think that the, the collective um, group of them has really been able to lead the way when it comes to using their voices, um, standing together in, in unison on things that are important and almost like driving the, the league and the people behind the league to have to support them. Um, these are the women of the WNBA and they've always been treated that way. And I love that about the league and I appreciate that about the leadership. And, um, you know, I think that people need to continue telling their stories because whether it's Maya Moore, you know, giving up her career, um, mm-hmm. you know, to, to get Jeremy Lyons out of prison, um, or that, uh, you know, all the women speaking in their post-game interviews about, um, you know, women who are not brought to the forefront in the way that men are when it comes to police brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they get it, they get what's important and they get the, the, the impact that they can have um, if they, if they stand together as a group. And if that means they follow the rules, so they can have a season. Great. If that means that they all stand together, um, and wear say her name t-shirts and talk about the right things on the sideline reporting or post-game interviews, um, they're all in sync and that's, that's the power of women. So I'm, I'm really excited to be part of it. Yeah, we always say on this show, you know, women build consensus. And it's one of the things yeah. we love about the WNBA. Jen Rosati, best of luck with your inaugural season with the Connecticut Sun and also in Tokyo this summer with the Olympics. Um, I'll be cheering for you as long as you're not playing my Chicago Sky. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. It's been really terrific talking to you. And again, best of luck. Thank you so much. Appreciate you guys. 
Jen is terrific. I'm so glad that we were able to get her um, on the show. Like I said, whenever, uh, every single time they describe you, they say college basketball, great. Jen Rosati, I mean, that that's pretty amazing. Yes. I would like to have that be, uh, you know, like the suffix to my name as well. Like, so, right. you know, when you're filling out forms and, you know, send to Jane McManus, comma, the great. Right. Know? Or like, you know, sports journalism, great. Yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah. You know, I would, uh, yeah. That, that'd be good. Um, so, you know, we didn't talk a ton about college sports with Jen um, as she's moved into the WNBA, but obviously she's been coaching at George Washington for, for many years um, before leaving to, to take over the sun. Um, you know, we I just want to talk really quickly about what went down at Northwestern last week um, that the community is really upset about. And I think we haven't seen the ultimate resolution on this yet. Um, you know, I, for people who don't know, I wrote about this over at Deadspin. Um, Northwestern did a uh, put together a search committee to look for a new athletic director and uh, had, you know, a a very inclusive, diverse uh, search committee. And they interviewed a lot of people, including uh, former Northwestern alums, former Northwestern superstars like Napoleon Harris, the third football player. Uh, They interviewed Anuka Brown, who we all know as formerly Anuka Brown Sanders, who um, not only worked in the Knicks front office, but won a sexual harassment suit against the Knicks and Isaiah Thomas that I really wish people would remember when they're talking about how great Isaiah Thomas is. Um, sure. and, and not only that, she was she was at the NCAA for a long time. So yeah. talk about qualifications for this particular job. Right. And most recently, I think, worked in a, in a big, huge position for UNICEF. So, I mean, this is a person who, you know, obviously is incredibly accomplished. Um, Northwestern wound up choosing the guy down the hall. Um, who is, uh, as people have described to me, uh, a member of the old of the good old boys club, um, a guy who his name is Mike Poliski. He is supposedly the choice of former AD Jim Phillips, who is now the head of the ACC, of Pat Fitzgerald, the head football coach of uh, Pat Ryan, who is a huge donor uh, to Northwestern and all the athletic facilities are named after him and the college president. And the problem is, that Mike Poliski uh, was involved in uh, a cheerleading scandal. Basically, he's being sued for sexual harassment. Basically, what happened is the cheerleaders are pretty much being uh, pimped out and sexually exploited to wealthy donors who come and hang out with the cheerleaders before the games, uh, fondle them, pick them up, slap their butts, do all kinds of things they're not supposed to be doing. And uh, one of the cheerleaders named Hayden Richardson and another cheerleader named Erica Carter um, Hayden Richardson has actually filed a lawsuit against the school. Erica Carter says that she will do so. Erica Carter is black and she, uh, was told that she could not wear her hair in braids or other quote unquote ethnic hairstyles that she couldn't stand next to another black cheerleader because of the optics. Um, so all kinds of problems. Their cheerleading coach was ultimately fired last fall. But Mike Poliski, uh, who the cheerleaders went to for help, basically accused them of fabricating evidence. And he is now the guy who Northwestern has chosen to leave their athletic department, even though he is the named defendant in a federal lawsuit. Uh, you know, I wish this were surprising, Julie. I really, well, I, I mean, I don't know what to say. There, there are 65 Power 5 schools. Five have women as athletic director. Two have Black women. So I think you have to ask, what is the structure that allows the mics to continue to get hired over women who are far more qualified? And the answer to that, I think, is that, you know, his real job is to hold hands with the handsy donors yeah. and to make them give money. 
It is not to make sure that cheerleaders aren't harassed. And, um, and, you know, this is kind of the unspoken, this is, you know, when you have a sport that is built on exploitation, they have, these athletic directors have to pretend that college football is as important as, you know, women's field hockey or volleyball or anything else. They have to pretend that because they know it isn't true. And I think the, you know, if you brought someone in who was able to look at the inequity or to look at the way that the cheerleaders were treated and say, this is unacceptable, it would upend everything. It is very inconvenient for a school because then the handsy donors, the lecherous donors, the athletic supporters might not open their wallets quite so freely. And because this whole enterprise is completely filthy with money, this is what we get. And imagine being a 20 or 21 year old girl who, and not even saying woman, I'm saying girl at that point, because these are children. Um, Well, 21, you, you get to be a woman at 21. But I, I see your point. They're quite young and easily excluded. Yes. yes. I'm not saying that in the grand scheme of things, they're not women. I'm saying that like compared to us, these are children. Right. I mean, like I look at my kids as children, even though they're technically not. Right, right. Um, they, she, uh, you know, gets up the courage who's gotten zero support from her cheer coach. Who's basically told her to sit down and shut up about this. She goes to the athletic director for help. Um, she meets, I mean, I can't even imagine. I remember what it was like to like interview people for the first time when I was that age on the phone, I was terrified. She goes to the athletic director. She meets with the deputy athletic director and, uh, the title nine person there. And they accuse her of lying. Right. I mean, imagine what that feels like. She has no power whatsoever, none. And she could lose a scholarship. She could lose her ability to be in school. She could she could feel the wrath of a fan base. I'm sure she does. You know, I, I'd hate to see if she's on social media, what kind of, uh, you know, messages she gets. Um, you know, this is, this is the way it goes. And it's absolutely, absolutely horrifying. And then to have the institution itself give the stamp of approval to a person who uh, is a named defendant, you know, with these allegations is really, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to, and over such qualified right. women who were in that um, candidate pool, it's, it's, it's absolutely believable considering how absolutely filthy college sports are, yeah. revenue generating college sports are. And the search committee is absolutely livid because they spent all this time vetting all there was a search there was a search uh, firm involved who vetted candidates and they interviewed them and they spent all this time doing this only to have them point to the guy who was like the best buddy with the other guys and they're sort of like what were we doing here for all this time you know um it's, you were it's a- you were cover you were providing cover as a search yeah. committee. That's what their job was. Well, I mean, look, you know, when I was growing up, Northwestern was the punchline of the Big Ten. Um, everyone always admired their academics, or, but their sports, not so much. And, uh, you know, within the past 20 years, Northwestern has really exploded in terms of their athletic facilities. I mean, they have both stadiums are named after Pat Ryan, one of the donors, who is the guy who wanted Mike Poliski. Um, you know, and, and someone pointed out to me, this is a bunch of white guys picking the other white guy. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I, you know, we hold Northwestern up as, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, the academic standard in the big 10. And, uh, it's, it's really disappointing, I guess, to see them go down the same route as so many schools that are basically known for football. Yeah. But, but what is the surprise? I did see Kevin Blackstone wrote an excellent, uh, opinion piece in the Washington post about how disappointed he is in his alma mater. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I just, I have to say, why would you expect any differently? And, you know, until students who are, um, you know, who are the paying 
the paying customers of these different schools until they rise up and demand better uh, accountability when it comes to Title IX or these kinds of things. Um, you know, I think I, I think a lot of schools will continue to treat assault and harassment like a an un, a, a very sad but necessary side effect of their uh, right. big time revenue generating programs, which is the honestly, I mean, no one would come out and say that, but that is in de facto the way these things are treated now. Yeah. And you know, the most galling thing about this is that that 80 faculty members, 80 female faculty members at Northwestern signed a, a letter to Northwestern basically saying, you've got to figure this out. Like, like we want a, a full and transparent investigation. We want to know what the investigation finds, um, you know, and what Northwestern did was just hire, you know, some independent firm to do it quietly, hushed it all up and then came out and said, oh, Mike Kaliski has been cleared. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? He's been cleared. Like, we haven't seen anything. We don't know anything. So there was, you know, and after all that, they picked Mike Poliski. So it was sort of like, I felt like it was a looking directly at the women and Black members of the community who had signed this letter and picking the white guy anyway. Like, it felt like a very deliberate choice. Yeah, well, the he's not going to threat, even if, let's say he didn't do anything. And let's say he, he you know, Poliski had nothing to do with this. He is not going to threaten the status quo. He's not going to install culture change. He is not going to upset the apple cart. Things will be able to continue as usual with Northwestern athletics. And that's why he was chosen. And, I, you know, I don't, I'm sorry. It's so disappointing, but, you know, honestly, it's also so predictable. Well, and I feel like this is where all of us alumni who, you know, and, and not even alumni, but people who just love the schools, who, who, you know, support the schools, that's when it's time to stand up. Because I mean, my school, I think, was pretty close or at least on the track of wanting to hire Steve Alford for a basketball coach a couple of years ago and wound up not doing so because the alumni threw such a fit about his, you know, history of covering up sexual assault. So, you know, it is that is when the alumni need to be screaming from the rafters because, you know, Northwestern is very God, what's the word? Impressed <laughs> with itself. I mean, the right, last right. thing Northwestern wants to see is is stuff all over the media about how they screwed this up. Um, they are they're very willing precious. to sell out that they're willing to sell out that that kind of, you know, it, more in more intellectual of the football school's reputation. It seems yeah. like pretty easily. Right. It's pretty cheap to them now. But they still think shame. they're still like we are Northwestern, you know, like I mean, you know, these are the people at the college football games who always told us all we were going to be working for them someday. You know, I mean, do people know about that chant? Like whenever we'd play oh. Northwestern, they would chant, that's all right. That's OK. You all work for us someday. Like, I mean, <laughs> eh. um, so. Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting because, I, you know, there was a huge protest on Friday outside the president's residence or outside the provost residence. One of the two. I'm not sure which one. Um, and uh, I'm sure that, you know, seeing this in The Washington Post is not what they signed up for. So uh, we'll see. Maybe maybe uh, the people will rise up and be able to to take this one down. Sure, sure, sure. Power to the people. Yeah. Yeah, I'll be I'll I'll believe it when I see it. Um, yeah. I don't think I don't I think they'll just ride it out and, you know, everybody will bring out the pom poms in September. Well, that's what we found, right? That you can just you can just refuse to leave and it yeah. eventually goes away. I mean, I I've see, I was saying about it, about uh, Andrew Cuomo on the yeah. other day. I'm like, why is he still your governor? Right, right. Didn't he harass like six women? Sure, sure. But we've uh, he, he hasn't he hasn't been very visible lately. So, you know, that's good. So everything's cool. I feel like we learned this from all the guys in the Trump administration. You can just refuse to go and eventually people get tired and are like, yeah, no, but it's, something it's, else. 
Well, you've also had, you know, Ralph Northam in Virginia with the blackface. He was mm-hmm. able to, but I mean, I think he actually addressed that and tried to, to be forthright about it and, and to deal with it as a thing. I don't think Cuomo has done the same thing and he's still there. So I, I you can't just attribute it to one party or another. It really is both. Oh, I'm yeah. Both, no. sides in this one. both sides in it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Look, oh. I told you I have this enormous piece of coconut cake for Mother's Day sitting in my stomach. I'm not in the mood for both sides in it. <laughs> Happy Mother's Day, Julie. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day, Jane. Thank you. And to uh, all of the mothers out there listening to the ladies' room, happy Mother's Day to you. Yeah. Happy and to the women in your life. Yeah. And just to, yeah, just women in general. Just yes. rooting for all the women. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to. Oh, yeah, exactly. Northwestern's not. <laughs> uh, hey, uh, that's it for our episode. We hope that you'll read our work over at Deadspin and give us a follow on Twitter at Jane Sports and at Julie DeCaro. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week here in the ladies' room. <laughs>